Find Your Feet with the Find Your Feet podcast. I'm really excited to be able to say that due to popular demand, both from my own brain, but also from all of our podcast listeners, we were able to sit down again with the amazing Clive Stack. Dr. Clive Stack is a a doctor who has been specializing a lot in emotional intelligence. And I was really keen to go back to him and delve a bit deeper into some of the raw human emotions that we all experience, particularly in the lead up to really big events or personal challenges. For me, this discussion came when I was in the lead up to the Ultra Trail Australia 100 kilometres, my first ever 100 kilometre race. And one of the emotions that I was experiencing a lot at the time was fear. So this discussion centres strongly around fear and anxiety and what, what really those emotions are doing to help us Because I think when we get to understand these emotions, they can be used very carefully to guide us through uh, and out to the other side where clearer headspace and waters lie. This discussion was really, really interesting, and I think it's going to really hit home to a lot of our listeners, um, I guess, things that they experience in their everyday lives as well. So without further ado, let's jump right into this discussion with Dr. Clive Stack. to be back again and indeed thank you honey for having me again yeah it's a pleasure we uh, we had such wonderful feedback after our first session sitting down with you and I think there were lots of surprises that popped up in the conversation that really hit a lot of people including myself um I guess I just wanted to start the conversation today recapping a little bit on why you really why you believe that having an understanding of emotional intelligence can enhance our lives and take people towards maybe where they want to go. Okay. Um, because emotions, uh, they're, they're guiding us at a very, very basic level. Um, it's kind of like um, you asked a question um, um, in another context which related to why it was that um, if you're hungry or if you're hot or if you're cold or if you've... Um, um, you know, got those other basic problems, why it is that the emotions don't sort of seem to come in because you're too busy fighting those. It, once you've dealt with those, once you are, you know, you've got enough food, you've got enough shelter, you've got enough of the Maslow hierarchy mm-hmm. um, type, type of concept, once you've got those, the next level is in fact the emotions that can teach you to listen to yourself. And you asked, uh, again, you asked a question, um, how can you achieve the most? How can you achieve the best of yourself in in whatever realm, whether that be sport, whether that be um, um, an error as an um, um, aircraft mechanic, as mm. a, whatever, whatever it is that people are doing, to achieve your best, you 
it is valuable to listen, to learn to listen to yourself because those emotions will guide you the best to the path that best suits you and that you are going to enjoy the most, that you are going to be the best at. So everyone has a talent. Everyone has a talent. Um, everyone has an ability. Yours is, is running and uh, among other things. Um, and so your emotions will guide you along that path. So as you learn to listen to your emotions, you are getting the best guru that you can have that can guide you to achieve that that end. Now, the problem is, is that there are lots of emotions, there are lots of things to learn. And are there lots of avenues in which you can take your life? Like you say, like, we've all got one thing that we're good at. Can we be good at... Lots of things. Lots of, of things. Course, of course, yeah. of course. What I'm really getting at is that individuals are individuals, that mm-hmm. um, uh, you can have somebody who may may be told that they should be running. Um, you know, their mother was a runner, their father was a runner, their sister is a runner, and Therefore they're told they need to be a runner. Yeah. And they're not. They're, an, they're a mechanic or they're a... Um, and so they, they may well be able to follow it because their genes might allow them to do the running. And they go, look, see, you've got the, yeah. you've got the skill or whatever. But in actual fact, that's not where they and Maybe I'm at that point in my life where I am starting to question for myself whether or not, you know, I was always you know, my pathway was always to be involved in running be it as an athlete or be it as a coach or whether that's just a mould of the upbringing that I've had. You know, now I'm at a point where you think, like, maybe there are other things that I could be good at. And that was my take-home from the last message, last uh, conversation that we had together, which um, our listeners can go back and have a listen to, was that it was really important to kind of take a step back and listen and feel for those emotions and then to think about, you know, what is this potentially telling me I could do. Absolutely. Um, But my problem since the last conversation has really been I can feel them and Mm -hmm. I'm starting to recognise them, but I don't have the language, the education to name an emotion and I certainly don't have the education to know what to do next. Sure. (laughs) A lot of the the challenges with um, emotions is that... um, they are intrinsic to us. They are genetically determined. And so deep down we do actually have the answers. Mm. But often the biggest part of the problem is that we cognitively overlay our learning. So um, that they talk about in the literature the concept of emotions and feelings and emotions being the, um, being the core genetically um, driven um, bodily experience of something and the feelings being the overlay, the, the overlay from memories, the overlay from teaching, from parental guidance, from um, experiences in, in your life, that kind of thing. So one of the difficulties that we've had is that um, trying to find those cause, those, those emotions, those meanings, um, we actually have got it from individuals because individuals, we all know these things. We all know them, I believe, deep down, but we kind of get um, diverted. We, we, we don't necessarily 
um, follow what our deeper feelings guide us to. Our de- sorry, our deeper emotions are guiding us to. So, for example, when you when you discover um, a new emotional group or things which we're doing all the time. So this is an ongoing research mm. project. Um, when you discover one and you put it in its place, it's like uh, discovering the pencil. You know, you go, that's really obvious. You know, that's, you know, that's such a simple concept. Everyone should be able to get that. But that's the nature of a truth, I believe, is that when, when something gels at a very deep level, you probably have got pretty close to or at least heading towards a truth one of those one of those gems one of those little little um things so i would i would suggest that we all do know at a deep level but sometimes we might need a bit of help in terms of um find defining them out of our feelings out of our and clive that's really that's really interesting so I guess my question coming back to you on that note then is that when you do truly identify and find an emotion and go, ah, that's what I'm feeling, what is the what is the state that tells you you have identified it? Is it, you know, you suddenly just get this sense of calm come over you like, ah. Okay. You know. That's actually quite easy and it's quite exciting to tell you. Okay. So basically what happens is if you... Um, I'll just go back a, a step, and we talked a little bit about this last time, but um, it, it's a useful concept to understand. Believe it or not, under the classic definitions, as I understand them for emotions and feelings, a, a sense of hunger, which we call a feeling, um, is strictly speaking an emotion because it's a bodily bodily experience. Mm. So I find that interesting. Mm. Um because if you think about things like hunger or thirst or any of those, they have an obvious solution. So you feel hungry, you have something to eat. Um, it's a complex process because it's not just about something to eat. It's whether it's nutrition that you need, whether it's uh, calories that you need, it's um, um, um particular kinds of of um, nutrition that your body might need for its own repair, etc. So it's, we get guided in a complex direction or some people do if they if they can listen but basically what i'm saying is that when you eat you don't feel hungry anymore Mm. and so the way you know you've found it is that it resolves the emotion Mm -hmm. and i'm talking about the discordant emotions the the um displeasurable the the ones that you go i don't like feeling this and the ones that go, I don't like feeling this, you want to change what you're doing. Mm-hmm. The ones that go, gee, this is nice, means you want to do more of it. And this is where the problems arise with um, things like drugs that actually make those feelings happen without the appropriate yeah. um, lead-up that we're designed to experience. So I guess the area that I'm really fascinated by is the area of optimising our own performances in life. And you were saying that many of us will have, or we all have something that we are potentially very good at. Or Or a number of things. Or a number of things. And I guess I kind of now want to put myself into the conversation and just to try and maybe get some real tangibles out of this. So I've signed up to a huge race it's in a couple of weeks time 
Um, I see it as my last hurrah in sport at a competitive level before I sort of take my life in other directions. And so with that, I guess, comes a lot of pressure internally but also externally. Um, And, you know, the pressure to perform where you know you can't just rock up and just be your average Joe Blow, that there are people looking at your performance going, you know, she has a potential to win or she has a potential to do very well, you know, raises the bar every time. So the emotion that keeps kind of bubbling up at the moment for me is around like an anxious state. Mm-hmm. And even in Nepal on a holiday, I just kind of kept finding myself bouncing back into this sense of anxiety. You and I have talked about anxiety a little bit before, mm-hmm. but I'm really interested to know you know, how to listen to that emotion and where to take that emotion. Sure. So anxiety anxiety is a fascinating uh, group of emotions. So it, there isn't just one anxiety. Um, there's a number of, number of them. But it seems from the work that we've done that its main function is related to helping us to understand there is a... Um, aspect of our life that we can be independent with that we are not being independent with. So what I'm talking about here is, um, I'll I'll need to go back a little bit. So this group of emotions developed uh, developed in the brain um, evolutionarily through a um, process called separation anxiety. Mm. So separation anxiety, we believe, is the original sort of concept where um, a child or, or baby um, bear or um, um, other vertebrate animal, but, um, because this, this seems to be part of the vertebrate family, um, or everything from alligators up, as I said before. Mm-hmm. Um, the, um, so this separation anxiety is there to actually keep the child who is not capable of being independent close to the parent so that they survive. So this this group of emotions is the one that um, causes the baby to cry. And um, if you've read any of the interesting stuff about cries, there are very specific cries. There are cries for hunger. There are cries for pain. There are cries for um, uh, being alone. There are etc. etc. And these are very specific. The the um, um, the concert pianist. Um, a lady who actually discovered all this was able to pick the pictures, was able to actually pick the changes in the cry, and she was able to define that. There's, um, the, um, there's a lot on the net about it. It's a fascinating area. But that's part of this, um, this domain of um, separation anxiety. So what the brain is very... Um, uh, it, it uses things that it can use rather than develop a new thing. So if it's got a system that it can use for one process, it will use that again um, rather than waste um, um, energy and, and direction developing a whole new one. So what, what um, we believe has happened is that the, the process, that, that domain of which, from which separation anxiety comes, the domain in which the child is made to feel anxious when it goes outside the range or the, the um, care of its parent when it is incapable of being independent. You know, the blind little puppy with the, with the you know, yeah. it's, it's unable to move. It's, it's, it needs the teeth to, to be able to survive. If it actually wanders off, um, or, or does it will die if it um, and so 
what we then have is we then have this interesting thing that the very same system that is used to keep the child with the parent is exactly the same system that in fact allows the child to separate from the parent. So when, when the child becomes capable of doing things itself, and this is the example, I don't know whether I gave it to you last time about the sh- tying the shoelace. Yeah, yeah, you did. Um, so then that concept allows the, allows the um, child to then um, be aware that it can do it and then it um, experiences a discord, uh, uh, an ang- anxiousness that says, I need to be tying my own shoelace. Get away from me, Mum. So know. can I read into that emotion then that two and a half weeks out from a major competition, if I'm feeling anxious, that's a good thing? It, it is a good thing because what it's actually telling you is you are capable of being independent in this. You don't need to be concerned about what everyone else thinks. You don't need to be concerned about what the um, you know the local media thinks. You don't need to be concerned about what the other runners think because you are you. You are an independent person who is doing this because she wants to do it, as opposed to doing it because mum said or because, um, you know, I was told to. This is a thing that you want to do. Yeah. So the anxiety, I would suggest, is when when we have things that we need to do and we don't do them, we will experience the anxiety. But these, in particular, this lot relates to our independence. So a bit like the shoelace thing, um, in, in this setting, it may be things like um, I'm waiting for someone to tell me that it's okay or I'm waiting for someone to say um, you don't need to worry. I'm waiting for yeah. someone else to come in. And what I really, what I'm really telling myself, is that this is mine. This is I'm, I'm a big girl. I'm, I can I can do this, and yeah. and it's what I want to do. Yeah, I'm actually laughing here, Clive, because when I've been like say in Nepal, I'm sitting on a bed and I'm feeling anxious, and Graham picks up on it. So my partner picks up on it, and he goes, "Well, you know." why you, you seem really restless you seem really anxious and then I feel like lashing out to him and going yes because it's I've got this race and I don't want to do it and I just want you to tell me that you don't need to do it and he goes oh look you're really well prepared you know you're really going to enjoy it and it's it's not what I want to hear but I know it's what I need to hear and then as soon as I get up off the bed and go and do something proactive like go for a run or you know, yep. go and have a nutritious meal or something, then the anxiety disappears. And yep. Well, the, the, the interesting thing there is that um, we have two choices as an adult. We can choose to not do it because we don't need to do it anymore or we can actually choose to get on with it and do it. But when you do neither, you will have anxiety. What would happen, though, if at this point, you know, I like I said, I know I've done the preparation. Yep. I don't really to be honest, care what the result is, but I know there will be a result. So if I was to turn away now because of the anxiety, because it's scary to go and do this Uh, 100K event and not do it, initially there's a sense of calm. Okay, interestingly, you've just used a word, and this is where where it's um, useful to understand. A lot of people call something anxiety and if it is truly anxiety it's what we've been talking about Mm -hmm. but what you just said was you said i'm scared Mm -hmm. now fear is not anxiety Mm -hmm. okay there is 
um, there is stress, there is worry, there is um, anxiety, there is fear, there is anger, um, the, and there's tension. They're not the same. They actually all have different functions. Our fear is completely different. Our fear actually tells us what we want to be doing. Hmm. Our fear guides us. Um, basically, what our fear says is that there is something you need to do um, that is dangerous. And when I say dangerous, it could be dangerous from an emotional perspective. It could be dangerous from a physical perspective, you know, physically to our body. Indeed, reputational perspective. Yeah. Any perspective that is important to us. So if something is dangerous and we are frightened, it's telling us to be more aware. It's saying, go into this with greater, um, look at it more, deal with it more, um, study what, what's happening, what, what do you need to do? Like, for example, if you said that I went for a run and I felt better, then it was probably saying you need to go for a run. And you're in Nepal, which is low altitude, so it's a great time to actually do it, which is your subconscious. It's not obviously a yeah, thing. Yeah. Going, hey, what a great opportunity to to build up my um, um, red cells and, and so on for the race than to go for a run here in Nepal. Mm. But we don't – a lot of that knowledge is not – is it, it's in there. It's a subconscious. But it's, a, it's so yeah. complicated that it just says, hey – there's something you need to be doing here, go and do it. Now, this is, this is different. So, for example, if we're, if we're running along with a spear and chasing a goanna or something and we're, we're focused on the goanna and, we, and we, um, you know, we've got to get it so, because it's the meal for the tribe or whatever, and so we're chasing it around and running and, and going after this, after this goanna, poor goanna, but he's going to be respected, <laughs> um, and it runs over the edge of a cliff. Now, as soon as it runs over the edge of the cliff, if you are too focused on chasing the goanna, you will also run after it and you will die. So, or potentially. So what actually happens is the body has this, um, in this particular context, it has this really interesting uh, phenomenon where if you look down at a particular angle and at a distance, so the body knows that you're looking down and it knows that you're looking at distance, it knows that if you're focusing on something in that realm, you're about to fall. So it actually has an automatic feedback to the amygdala, which actually, which is the um, uh, part of the brain that deals with fear, and it, oh, and I'm sure other areas, but um, we, we know that it does that, and it will give you a fear response. So you then go, oh, and it makes you stop, it makes you step back, it makes you examine the situation more closely, become more aware, whereas before you weren't aware, you were just aware of the goanna and, and whatever, which then allows you to go and get the vine and, you know, tie it to a tree and, you know, climb down the thing or find the path down the, down the cliff that's safer or whatever, something that you weren't aware of before. So when part of your brain is aware that you can make the situation safer, so you need to understand it's only when there is a chance to make it safer that you will experience that feeling in the normal context, unless you've got diseased. Um, so diseased do state. you think that's why when we're getting closer to a time of performance, say in the mid, like say you sign up and I want to come back to this concept, but you yeah. sign up six months before yeah. 
and then you roll through a wave and a wave of emotions, which is what I want to come back to. And then in the middle of that six month block, you find a sense of routine and calm and you just kind of every day you get used to getting up and doing your training and eating this and, and then yep. getting closer to the event as these last few weeks creep up on you, you feel your fear go up. Is that because we're getting close to the edge where... And there's more we need to know. So, for example, in, in order to know that there is more we need to be aware of, if you can notice the fear and then go, right, what is it that I'm not doing? I've done my nutrition, I've done my um, thing, I've got my planning right, my, my um, scale of exercise is correct, I, I know when to stop, I know when to start, I know when to um, how to do that. What am I not looking at? And... It may be something that you hadn't thought of. It, well, it will be something you haven't thought of, otherwise it wouldn't, it wouldn't need the emotion to remind you. And it could be something like, what are my emotions around this? What, yeah. what are, um, you know, do I have the right footwear for it? Do I have the, there will be something. Well, I think it might actually be, Clive, that to, and at the level we're talking about, where yep. you're really aiming for your best performance, you, are, you feel like you're walking along a knife ridge. Yeah. And where... You could either do too much and slip down one side and overtrain, or yep. you slightly underbake yourself and turn up feeling flat. Indeed. So I guess the fear <sighs> is about trying to stay on that knife ridge and then gently bring yourself off it, sort of to a point where you're ready for performance. Absolutely. That so that that makes lots of sense because if as you're getting closer you need to be more specific i mean this is your domain um that makes lots of sense because the fear is saying you know be careful you're mm. you're um you need to be aware here don't lose focus don't don't um don't lose focus of what you're what you're trying to do and when you do slightly lose focus and you maybe start to do something that is a little bit off as you say maybe overtraining or undertraining you will get that experience of fear mm. which says hey refocus again and you go right okay no yep i need to it's do this it's kind of what it feels like like when you're in the middle of that 6 month training block you're on a train and it, it's just shuffling along and you're going past yep. the stations and you're going through the the motions but it does actually feel about 3 weeks out like you just need to actually make a conscious decision to get off the train. And I imagine that's where the fear response is really yeah, helpful. Absolutely. To so it's just, you, you know. Yeah, just become yeah. more aware of what it is that you're doing. Mm. And so the, the, the fascinating thing here, the thing that I love about this, is that you don't experience the fear in a normal sense, and I'm not talking uh, disease state, I'm talking mm -hmm. normal state. You don't, ex you don't seem to experience the fear when there is nothing you can change. So if there is no way you can, uh, you can reduce the danger, then you will not experience fear. In other words, if there's just a danger that you can't change, and remember life is a set of probabilities, you know, things can happen. If there's something you can do about it, you will experience fear which will, will make you more aware and, and allow you to do it. It doesn't guarantee you that nothing's going to happen. What it guarantees you is that you are the most prepared for that situation. And I guess that's the state that you hope that you feel in those last couple of days leading into an event, that sort of heightened sense of calmness because you have done the preparation. And, and that's the other thing I was going to say. That calm is what happens when you resolve anxiety. Yeah. So when you, you, you asked, how do I feel calm? What you do is you actually do what you need to do. So the anxiety thing is the get up and get on with it. You know, the, the you know, you're an idiot. We're, we're, come on, let's get on with it. That's the adult. That's the right. Let's get on with it. Let's 
I've got this to do, I'm going to do it. No, it's not always fun. No, it's not always easy. But that's what the adult does. The adult gets up there and just gets on with it. The child sits there and complains and lies in its bed with its covers over. So what would happen to me, and I'll also add in to someone who's maybe only signing up to something like this for the first time, who gets to this point three, four weeks out, is feeling that anxiousness and goes, not too hard, I'm not ready, whatever, and walks away. Like, you initially feel a sense of relief because I know what that feels like. I've done it before. But then what? Is there a sense of... Okay. There is a... There there is a... Okay, I'll I'll take something that I understand. Well, no, no, no. I'll I'll keep going with your example. If you... Let's say um, there are physiological dangers in in running a a significant race like that that the body knows that it can't handle unless it's got the appropriate preparation and and Mm -hmm. um, processes in place so this is a potentially extreme process for the body it will give you warnings all along the way if you don't listen to them of course they don't get done so you don't as you say, you overtrain or you undertrain or you don't do the appropriate nutrition or whatever. Now you get up to race day and you're going, I'm not ready for this. This is, this is, and there is no time. There is, it, I, I, I'll, I'll give you an example that I understand better, which is exams. Mm-hmm. So when you've got an exam and you, you can study for the exams, so you've got time and you feel anxious and scared. And so you, um, it drives you to do the work. So you just, you get down, you knuckle down, you, you do the study. When you get closer and closer and closer to the point of the exam, where you're actually going to walk into the exam and sit the paper where there's no more books to look at, there's no more study that you can do, there is a point that you get to where, yes, you could run away, and that would do it too, or you just go, there's nothing more I can do. Like... I'm here, and all the anxiety goes, all the fear goes, because there is now no longer anything I can do more to solve this problem because it's an exam. You know, I'm not yeah. going to die from doing it, but I'm, I can only do as well as I can now. In the setting of the race, there is one last thing you can do, which is pull out. Yeah. So what I'm saying is that if you want to be an elite athlete, my guess would be that you need to do what you're doing, which is actually listen to those emotions and let them guide you along the path as you head up to that point. If it's not going to kill you, if, you're, you know, if your body is, is capable of doing it, you might actually get to a point where you just become calm because there's nothing more you can do. You know, Just before the starter pistol goes, there's nothing more you can do. There's no more training, there's no more But if whatever. you just succumb to the fear and you pull out, okay. what's the repercussion of that? Because okay. it happens. Absolutely. Yeah. The repercussions are, are there to help you, okay? So everything that you do gives you an opportunity to learn. So what you may do is if you... Um, there's uh, Louise Hay... Uh, talks about face your fear and do it anyway, which is a fantastic concept. Um, I would say my, my version of that would be face your fear and do it anyway with more awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but I, I agree with the, with the sentiment. Um, let's say you let the fear drag, 
take you away from it. What will actually happen is, okay, fear, fear builds up to the point at which there is about to be resolution. So we liken this to uh, walking up to a screen that you don't know is there, but there's a tiger projected onto the screen that you don't know is a projection. You think it's a real tiger. And as you get closer and closer and closer to it, the tiger is getting closer and closer and closer to you. You're about to be eaten and you believe it. You, you honestly believe you're about to be eaten. When you are a micron away from that screen, you still don't know it's a screen. You still don't know that this is going to be okay. And if you get to that point, the body is at a point where it goes, um, I couldn't handle any more of this. And the reason it's telling you that is because you're about to break through. So the, there is a, a fascinating little, little um, thing here, which is about when you're about to give up on something, it is about to change. It's about, you're about to get better. So when you're that micron away, if you now run away from it, your memory now, your, your body is now keyed up to think that that anxiety, that, that, that fear that you felt is going to be forever. And what's more is you know, you know inside you could not cope with another micron, well, another um, really micro nano, not nanon, mm. <laughs> um, you know, a smaller, smaller mm. thing, more because that was the peak. That was the point at which things were about to change. Now, for those that actually face it and walk through, get to the screen, they discover that it's, a, that it's just a screen that don't need to be concerned and it falls away. For those that don't, they will actually be experiencing even more anxiety mm -hmm. the next time because they are going, oh, my God, I'm going to have to deal with all of that and more. But in actual fact, they don't. So the concept here is, is a really lovely concept and, and we see this over and over and over again. When you are on track to do something, you, at various times, you may experience the point where you go, I just want to give up. I, I just can't do this anymore. And that point, we believe, is, our, is an intuitive recognition of things that are about to change. So mm. very, very commonly... You might be doing, um, I can imagine in a race, I, I'm not a racer, I'm, I'm, I'm not an athlete, <laughs> but I can imagine in a race there are points at which the pain gets so bad, the, the, the um, pain in the muscles and the, and the things get so bad that you might actually go, I don't know that I could cope with any more of this, but you push through it and suddenly the pain actually eases off Absolutely. and you actually get your second wind. Now, that it's not a coincidence that your mind is actually telling you that because it can sense what's about to happen. Mm. Our intuitive sense, um, we believe, comes from a, from that um, uh, cerebellum. We believe it comes from vermis the cerebellum, but it, it, it's what I'm getting at there is the cerebellum receives inputs from almost down to a cellular level from the body. You can't be aware of everything from that, that you couldn't think if you had all that information. So the brain deals with it for you, but it gives you that feeling. Mm -hmm. So we see this over and over again. Um, I can't remember, is it Burke and Wills or Burke and Wills? Um, they died uh, some 200 metres 
from the drop point of their food. So they had come some hundreds and hundreds of, of um, miles, in those days they were miles, mm. um, um, to a point where they went, we can't go anymore. They could have gone another 200 metres, mm. but they weren't to know that the food drop the was food in was 200 metres. But if they had listened to their emotions and they had understood that when the emotion tells you that I don't know that I can cope with much more, but you then say to yourself, but can I cope with this right now? The answer will always be yes. Mm -hmm. Always be yes. So if I can't, and so what it's actually telling you to do is bring your timescape down. Bring it, bring it down so that, yep, at the beginning of the race, I could cope with an hour of racing. I could cope with whatever, um, a day of racing, whatever. As you get closer to that point, you go, well, I don't know that I could cope with another hour of racing. And, you know, maybe I could cope with a day of racing at the beginning. And then yeah. at that point, at a certain point, it's going, oh, God, I don't know that I could cope with an hour. And then it, then you go, okay, but could I cope with um, half an hour? Yes, I can. Okay. Well, now you get to that point, you go, oh, I don't know that I could cope with another five minutes. Okay, but can you cope with a minute? Yes, I can. Okay. So you keep racing for the other minute. Then it goes, um, I don't know that I could cope with another um, minute of this. Okay, well, can you cope with 30 seconds? Yes, I could. And when you get down to the smallest denominator, you will find, and this is what, this is one of the techniques that can allow you to break through because if you allow yourself to do that, to bring yourself back in the timing, bring yourself this perspective back, what you'll then find is that you can cope with that second. And then the next time, next second, you can cope with two seconds. And the next second, because mm. we've reached our peak, we've reached you the point at which... So the exciting thing about this is when you recognise that that feeling of wanting to give up is in fact your own intuitive self telling you that things are about to change, what you then do is you start to recognise this and you start to see it happen. In, in the work that we've done in the charity, over 25 years we have been so, so close to having to close down just because of funding issues and, and things like that, because it's 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 hard. It's mm. it's hard running a charity um, and life gets in the way. And we have been at a point where you just go, I don't know that I can do this anymore. But then you go, hang on, I recognise this feeling. I know what this feeling is about. Okay, let's let's just go for another. If I can go for another week, I'll go for another week. And okay, can I go for another day? Yes, I can go for another day. Can I go for another half day? Yeah, okay, I can go for another half day. Okay, can I go for an hour? Oh yeah, okay, I can go for an hour and so on. And then you get to that point, and at that point, you get a call from someone who's going to come from Brisbane to come give you a hit. Yeah. So I can see, I can sense you have, you know exactly what you're talking about. You've been in this situation yourself, in your own sense of performance. Is that correct? Absolutely. The, the interesting thing is that as you learn this, as you, as you become more and more aware of it, you can actually use it to help you move forward. You can actually use it to guide you through those points, through those squeeze holes, through those, those points at which you don't know that you could do any more, and yet you are going to be able to. <laughs> so that, that tool, that technique, that, that emotion of learning to listen to that 
can actually take you to your best? I uh, shivers because it, it's exactly what my own experience has been. You know, when I think back about those performances in life, not just in the sporting arena, but in life where you think, I, I can't go another, I can't keep doing this. And then you're like, well, I've just got to get through tomorrow. I've got commitments tomorrow. And you get through tomorrow and then you go, I can, I've just got to get through tomorrow as well because I've got, you know, and then, yeah, and you just chip away at it and you break it down, you break it down and then eventually suddenly it just starts to feel easier and then you start to feel your momentum pick up again and you're going and you're going. And so what, what I'm suggesting is that this is your own guru, your own <laughs> guide telling you things are going to be okay but the way you experience it is I don't know that I can cope. And if you're taught to listen to it that way, you actually start to go and you then say to people, right, things are about to change. And sure enough, in depending on how long you've been doing something, so if you've been doing something for 20 years, it might be another year away, mm. which is short. If you've been doing something for 20 weeks, it might be a week away if you've been doing something for 20 days and like oh, no, I'm just picking 20 it's not yeah it's just no, a... no no but it's it's right and in the sense of running 100k it's sort of like there is a point in it and it normally hits you around 70k where there is a hump you know where at the start you're like on fire and this feels easy and I could keep doing this and then you start to struggle a bit and then you struggle more and then you're breaking it down and you're breaking it down and 10 minutes feels a long time and then you get through through that point that's all right that's fine you get through that point where suddenly um yeah it just starts feeling easier again but at that point where it does start feeling easier that is so easy to pull out at that point (laughs) it is and the interesting thing is that i suspect that elite athletes like yourself you learn you learn through doing this over and over again that that feeling tells you that things yeah. are about to change. Yeah. Maybe not as consciously, but as soon as you actually hear it, you go... Oh. Yeah, now that you're talking about it, it's like, oh, duh. And, <laughs> and that's what I'm getting yeah. at about these um, these emotional awarenesses. Once you, you, you ask the question, how do you know you've got one? Well, because it actually works. It actually it clicks. It unlocks a whole lot of times that you've experienced that. You go, yes, I've seen it there and I've seen it there and I've seen it in that place in my life. And it unlocks it. And suddenly those things are no longer a problem. And this is what we see with this work is that you can give people two or three concepts and it completely unlocks a set of experiences that, that started um, when they were six or seven with some challenging events in their life um, that set them on a path that then totally, you know, the, the, the ramifications in their life are, are huge. And at the point that you see them, they have more than they think they can bear. Mm. You then take them back and unlock those series of things and suddenly they, it, you can watch it, you watch it happen and you can see them going, oh my God, and that, oh, and that means, oh, and it, it and just, it, um, it's an avalanche. Happens. And yeah. then you find they come back the next time and stuff that has been there for 40, 50 years is resolved mm. from an emotional concept. And you ask me why I think emotions are important. 
And that is why. Yeah. That is cool. But now I want to challenge you a little bit. Mm. And it comes back to another... Um, like you, I love a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> it comes back to another state um, that I feel like elite athletes get into when they are in optimal performance. And actually at the moment I'm reading Rafael Nadal's book, The Tennis mm-hmm. Player, and he talks about it as being a state of self-hypnosis mm-hmm. where you get into what you were doing and you push, it feels like you push all emotions to the outside of what I call my bubble. Mm -hmm. And when I'm in my bubble, there is an absolute sense of control and calm around what I'm doing. Um, The only thing for me that I've learned that pops my bubble is actually love. And so my example of that is... um, in a race, if I'm running along and I'm in, a, I might be in a world of pain inside my bubble, but I'm not conscious. I'm not like I'm con. I'm unconsciously conscious of this world of pain that I'm in, <laughs> and then I suddenly come into a, a an arena where my partner is Graham, and he's like, "Wow, how are you doing? Well, or whatever it is," and he shows love towards me. Maybe wants to give me a quick hug before I go off again and onto the trail. It will be like my bubble pops, and I'm suddenly like. I can't keep doing this. Like, you know, so, but when I'm in that bubble, I am performing at my best. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly how Raphael Nadal talks about it in his book, which Mm. just was serendipitous to read that. What's your thought on that? Absolutely. Look, um, that concept that Raphael Nadal has actually pointed out, it's actually, um, so this concept is, is associative and dissociative. So in hypnosis, there are, there are two main concepts there are lots of concepts in in hypnosis, but um, there are two main uh, dichotomies, which are um, associative hypnosis and dissociative hypnosis, and these relate, we believe, to um, focusing more in one side of the brain or the other side of the brain. So when you are in the race. Um, it doesn't actually matter about left and right because it, it's not exact for everybody, but it is it is a dichotomy. It mm-hmm. is one side of the brain. Everyone has one side of the brain and another side. Whether it be left and right is actually not as, um, not as important mm-hmm. as it being one side or the other. So when you are in the race and you are focused, you are in associative hypnosis. You are associating with the um, with the um, each step on the on the pavement. Um, you're you're moving and you are you are hypnotized. You are in the zone, mm-hmm. and that uh, hypnotic state. When you associate with something, you dissociate everything else. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, you know, you take one side of the coin, you are not having the other side of the coin, that mm-hmm. kind of concept. Mm-hmm. So when you associate with the uh, each step that you're taking, um, uh, maybe your breath or, you know, whatever it is that you are focusing on, that focus will keep you dissociating from everything else. You don't see the other runners. You don't see the the uh, road. You don't see your pain. You don't see the um, things um, until there's a there's a thing that you need to do, like pick up a, a water drop or or whatever it is. When you when you um, have your partner and they you know they're there and you love them very much, they can break into it because it then takes you from that associative 
to the other, to the other side. So yeah. um, the, the side of the brain that's focused on each individual step is not the same side of the brain that focuses on our positive emotions, our our um, our love, and and so on. So it actually takes you into a completely different space in mm-hmm. your brain. In that space, um, we can't cope with it because we 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 are now divergent. We're now we're now looking at the big picture, and um, in in that particular spot, we've got you know another two kilometers to run or 10 kilometers or 100 kilometers or whatever it is and it's too much for us we then have to bring things back down again converge again so there's no reason why we can't do that go outside our bubble and return and back i guess again. it's being able to say oh i'm i've flipped the coin i'm on this side exactly. of the coin i deal with this but then when i leave this i need to flip back and be indeed in the other state. and this is about the concept of of the uh the rusty bolt or the squeak the the rusted hinge kind of idea that you you kind of need to um do it enough so that the the movement from one to the other is fluid mm-hmm. kind of like if you don't do it a lot it's it's like and then there's a really interesting uh thing that um your listeners may have may have seen as well which is a little little dancing lady on um that you can actually get on the um on the net if you look at right left brain right brain dancing lady it'll come up (laughs) and basically what it does is when you are looking at it from the left side of the brain it turns one way and when you're looking uh, at it from yeah, the right side yeah, of the brain, it turns yeah, the other, yeah. and yet the image is no different. Okay. It's exactly the same image. It's just that you're noticing things in a different context or a different perspective. And when you do that, the thing flips from one to the other. Some people find it really difficult to actually move from one rotation to the other rotation. Okay. Um, um, probably kids are more capable of doing it because they're they're actually used to flipping from one to the other as we get older we we kind of gravitate to our area of ease and we get a little bit um harder at it anyway it's just an interesting yeah. um, trick well to i play. was gonna ask on that note though um because i i'm i guess what we're really talking about especially in the hypnotic state is is flow the flow state and here yep. a lot push around the athlete world but is it is it healthy to be in that state very frequently? Because to me, it feels like when you're in that state, it makes everything feel easier. But when you come out of it, there is like this, and maybe it's a physical thing, but this absolute exhaustion. Like, it's to do with um, it's to do with actually achieving a goal. Okay, so it's okay. to do with our ability. It's the reason why um, the uh, original runner in marathon ran the 200 kilometers or something mm. to the king to tell him that the battle had been lost or won I actually can't remember which um, but there was something important that he needed to tell the king he ran 200 kilometers flat out in the zone got to the king told him the the news, the news and died so when something is important when something is is you've set out to do and you've directed yourself to do at that point if you're committed to it and that is who you are that's what you need to be doing then yeah that's it that's that focus needs to be there because there's no other way you'll achieve it 
in that context, sure, we may actually um, reduce our lifespan a, a fraction or whatever. I know that the work we're doing, um, I know that it will actually reduce our lives. And we've got evidence, I mean, there's lots of evidence to support that you do the kind of work we're doing and you do it in the way that we're doing it and you will have five or ten years less life. But what you also do is you go, well, I may have five or ten years less life, but as long as I get to the end of what I'm trying to do, then I've done what I need to do. Mm. I, I know that sounds very dramatic, yeah. but in actual fact, it, it's the same concept. So, yes, the, the answer to your question is, if, the, if, if we were to do that every day in, from moment to moment, we probably would find that um, we would fall in a heap because there are, there are only a certain amount of things that we can actually do, so it needs to be an important thing to us. When you're an athlete, these particular things, you're drawn to them. That's why um, you said one of the first things that's, that happens is you get excited about the race. Mm-hmm. That excitement is your own internal um, uh, adventurous self going... I want to do that. Mm-hmm. I want to be able to say, when I'm on my deathbed, I did that race mm-hmm. because it's important to me. It's something that, that I value. It's something that, that I would like to be able to look back and know that I've done. It doesn't have to be important to anyone else. It's not, it's not about that. This is why it's so important to understand as individuals, we all have our part to play in, in the greater process which is called humanity we are and this is a weird concept and it's very very difficult to explain but we are part of each other we are we are all interconnected humanity is an organism and that organism has a whole set of cells and those cells have their particular function and if you try to make a liver cell do what a brain cell does you end up with a cancer (laughs) because it's not supposed to be a, a brain cell it's supposed to be a liver cell or vice versa so when we as humanity are evolving, when we move towards the ideal, the ideal is that every individual is who they need to be. And that's what our emotions can actually help us to do. They can actually help us to function as the best of who we are. Mm. And if we are a person who is capable of um, elite um, athletic prowess, then it will get us to the best of that. Mm. So what happens then if, uh, and I've got so many questions, I'm just trying to think, I want to go back a step, so what happens if you are gearing up for something really important to you, and we'll go back to the sense that we're talking about, so Mm -hmm. this big race, but you just can't find your bubble state? Okay. Is there a way that, yeah, you can create a bubble state when you're struggling to find it? Yes. It depends on on which state you need to be in. So different people have different places that they Mm -hmm. can create it. So some people, it will actually be looking at the end. Some people it will be, how am I going to feel when this is all done? How, how am I going to be at the yep. bed? Yep. And, <laughs> and, and that is some people's bubble, mm-hmm. is that they're actually focused on just where get to the end. Get get to to the end. end. Yeah. And that works for them, and that's a bubble. That's the, associative, that's the dissociative um, um, 
process. An associative process is something like focusing on every step. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm more an associative person, so if I have um, a, a walk or whatever, and no, I'm not an elite athlete, <laughs> um, and, you know, you're carrying the heavy pack and you're, you're walking in for, um, for days into a, into a place, it becomes, for me, can I take another step? Yes, I can. That's fine. Okay, the fact that it's up or down or or um, um, vertical or whatever is not important. It's another step. So mm-hmm. you just take that another step, and so on you go, and you keep in that bubble, which then makes you oblivious to the fact that you're hurting, makes you oblivious to the fact that you're hungry and you're tired and you're you're cold and you're you know etc cetera, etc. Cetera. And then you get to the so get it's to the end. really just about experience over time, learning what your what your yeah, performance have a, state have a really look at is. what you do have a yeah. look at when you pr- take yourself into the bubble what are you actually doing look at it look at the process um that induction process that's what it's called in hypnosis when you induce your own uh, trance state the induction process is um often very specific for you you might um start to you might notice that as you are moving up to a race you actually pull yourself into that state you you take some breaths um deep breaths you you relax down um you you might um i don't know um be focusing on the road or focusing on the on on how your feet feel or or maybe not that um um about the um uh, getting ready to take the first step yeah. and as you start to take the first step that rhythm becomes your your hypnotic yeah. process different people do it in different ways if you everybody i would suggest does do this this is a normal state when you daydream you are going into your bubble okay mm-hmm. an excavator driver only because i know this because i do it myself um when you get in the excavator and you start to work you actually, you lose time. Mm. You, you just are in, you're not thinking about anything else. It's a, it's a, it's a meditation. It's a, it's a hypnotic trance. You are doing your work. You're, you're um, doing whatever it is that you've, that you've set out to do in that, in that particular, particular day. And you get to the end of the day and you go, God, has eight hours gone by? I, I didn't realize it. I'm, mm. you know, I've been working for eight hours. And the same thing happens if you love your job, if you, um, so if you, um, um, working with your kids and you get up in the morning and you, and you, um, a, a mum or a dad or, um, whatever it is that you do, if you love doing it 10 to one and, and you lose time in it, um, you are putting yourself into in trance. Yeah. And even another way of noticing when you put yourself into trance and this is not as healthy is when you don't want to be there. Mm. So we see this commonly in abuse situations where the husband or the wife is nagging and the the other individual in the partnership will actually go off into trance. And so there the, the one partner is going, you know, you're a this and that and the other. And they're actually off thinking about what they're going to do for dinner. Um, you know, what are the, how do I what do I need to prepare for the kids for for breakfast tomorrow? You know, mm. for their lunches tomorrow. And um, oh yeah, I need to clean those curtains. And and then you know the person finishes and goes. So did you hear me? Oh yes, dear. Yeah, no worries, love. <laughs> I'll do that. <laughs> yeah. And we don't hear anything. So all I'm saying is it's normal. And so if you can, what I would do if I was a trainer, which I'm not, <laughs> um, and I was looking for that. I would go looking for where in their life they do it 
And if they've done enough running, they will know that feeling. You'll recreate it. And recreate yeah. it. Look um, in detail at how you create your trance state. And it will be from almost the beginning of the um, um, uh, the thing. I'll, I'll give you another example. Smokers, okay, I'm not saying smoking is good. <laughs> I'm saying that there is a component of these repeated activities which are entrancing. And what a lot of people do is that when they um, start to go for the cigarette, you know, they're walking outside, they're moving into trance. Mm-hmm. And they are now in a trance, um, in a trance state. Um, and um, it's, it's just, a, <laughs> um, I just, um, they're, they're in a, um, it's distracting. Um, sorry, what were we? So as I know what you're saying. So like a smoker will go oh, outside yes, yeah. so bef- and they're already into a trance Absolutely. State. So what you've got to understand is that as they get up from their chair at work to head outside, they do a set of things. So they go to the handbag if they're a girl and um, maybe grab the handbag as they head out. Um, so it's effectively out like the, they're flipping the coin as they make the it is the, action It, it is the... Uh, entrancement so what I'm saying is look for the set of steps that happen that you always do and it may be that you take five big breaths or you you put your hands in a particular way or you walk in a particular way or you do a particular set of stretches and that's what Rafael Nadal was talking about like he has certain things that he always does like he'll always put his drink bottles in a certain angle by his chair and he will always pull his socks up and make sure they're both of an equal height and that's I guess his way of getting into his performance bubble that is his entrancement okay and so if you take the example of the smoker, as they, as they go to do it, they are, as soon as they sort of think, oh, I'm, I need to go and have a smoke, they are actually reaching down and they're starting the process. That's already started. So when you're, when you're looking for it in, um, in, in athletes and you're looking for what their trance state is, you need to actually look for the set of things that is common, exactly like yeah. Rafael Nadal does. So his his walking onto the onto the court is probably a set too. He probably yeah. has a specific set of breathing that he doesn't even know he has a particular walk. Even yeah. um, I think we all have it so like forth. that. We all have the little things that we always do. Um, you know, gearing up in the morning before a big performance. I guess I kind of want to then finish up. I but I. I just have one more question and I've asked it of a couple of the different people that we've spoken to on the podcast about goals because I came from a world where goals, you know, were th- the, the process of setting goals and the significance of having goals was always sort of highlighted to us through school, through coaches, through family even. And I got, I've re- more recently got to a point where I started to really resent goals because it felt like they were a pass or a fail and they locked you into something and there was no wriggle room unless you failed or yeah. you succeeded. What are your thoughts on it? Because emotions change a lot, obviously, minute to minute, day to day, our emotions change. And if we're using emotions to help drive us in a certain direction, very good. then if we, I guess, having a goal can help keep us roughly on track towards our best being 
but I feel like my freedom is clipped. Okay. (laughs) Look, what you've described is um, lots of people talk about a concept of mastery. Mm-hmm. And my my take on mastery is that you need two mainstreams to be able to achieve mastery. You need your um, um, you need your concept of integrity, mm-hmm. which is the ability to set a goal or to say that you're going to do something and you do it. Mm-hmm. And I'll talk a little bit more about how you need to do that in such a way that you don't break your integrity, um, while at the same time we need to be flexible, which is to do with freedom and um, the the ability to move as life gives it to us. Mm -hmm. So, for example, when you have both of those, what you have is the ability to set a goal, head for the goal, but you've thought really carefully about what you've set yourself. So, for example, um, let's say, um, okay, let's say I really want to um, play the piano, okay? And I've always wanted to play the piano, and so I decide, right, I am going to go and study piano, okay? So I set my goal to study piano. I don't set my goal to be a concert pianist. I don't set my goal to be able to play at any particular level. I set my goal at I am going to play the piano. I'm going to start to learn the piano. Why do I set it that way? I'll show you. So I then set off and I go and get myself a piano teacher and, you know, they teach me music and they teach me these sorts of things. And as I get to playing the piano, I get to a point where I go, you know what? this actually isn't the instrument that I really want. And the piano teacher just happens to have a trumpet sitting next to the um, piano because their husband plays the trumpet or something, I don't know. And I go, you know what? What I'd really like to do is actually learn the trumpet. I can't get to that point of knowing that I want to learn the trumpet until I've followed the path that has led me to want to play the piano. To, uh, to, well, not just that, but to be playing the piano, to be in the teacher's office, having learnt all the music and, and skills that I needed. So now I've learnt a set of things. It's not wasted. It's not failed. I have learnt a set of skills that now I can use and translate into the instrument that I want. And so now I change. I have the flexibility, and this is the other side to it. So we have to have that ability to set a goal, that ability to get excited about something and be able to go, yep, that's what I want to head for. But it's about letting ourselves go, that's what I want to head for, not that's what I want to do. Okay, so if I wind back the clock six months to when I made the decision to put myself on the start line for the Ultra Trail Australia 100k, my goal was I needed to finish it. Indeed, and you could have put your goal at just getting to the start line. And the start line doesn't mean that you finish it. How, if you were in my shoes, how would you, what language would you use with yourself? That's what I'm I'm really interested in, the language of goals as well. Okay, so I I would suggest, um, because I'm very hard on myself too, (laughs) and if I say I'm going to do something, I need to do it Mm -hmm. for myself because... 
um, one of your one of the concepts such as um, um, uh, self belief and self um, um, knowing that you're going to achieve something is only through your ability to keep your integrity. So I set goals now that I can achieve. So I would say I'm going to train for the race. If I listen to myself and go, no, I'm, actually, I know, I know where I really want it. I'm, I'm going to get to the start line. Okay, so I set out to get to the start line. That doesn't mean I'm going to finish the race. It doesn't even mean that I'm going to race the race. It just means that I'm going to get to the point where I am capable of racing the race and I am on the state line. And then what that allows you to do is it allows you the flexibility to be able to go, yep, okay, if that was too far, I might actually just go, I want to train for this. Yeah. Some people, though, would argue that that's not, stretching ourselves enough that we need more challenge than that to really achieve and what i would suggest is who is it that's telling you that so i would suggest that if you actually are listening to yourself you will achieve the most that you need to achieve because i might actually be a concert trombonist or, or trumpeter but i'm going to be a mediocre piano player but how do I know? How does anyone else know that? They don't, but we do, deep down. So our, our guide, our guide to, to guide us to our best, the problem is, is that we think our best is a particular thing instead of understanding that our best is our best. It is where we need to be. And you might have um, your family and your direction going that you've got to be a, 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 a sprinter and you're actually a, a um, um, long-distance runner or, um, you know, it might be long-distance, but, you, but you're actually um, uh, really good at um, orienteering running or, or something so that you don't allow yourself the freedom to be who you are, which will guide you to your best. Do, do you understand what I'm trying mm. to say? It, it's not about it's not about a specific thing. It's about learning to listen. It's learning to listen to who you are and where you are guiding yourself to, and that will achieve your best. When you are the person who can be the elite, whatever, you will be drawn there if you let yourself listen. And so, setting goals that are what you believe in, what you know you can do, what you want to be doing, and you go, I want to be at the start line because I really love the scenery, I really want to be there, I want to be on that point, enjoying the the, uh, experience, I want to be on the start line. So what about if you go back to mastery? and That doesn't mean that you can't (laughs) re-goal at that point and go, I'm now going to complete this because that's what you feel you need to do at that point. But it might just be that you've got to be on the start line because of somebody you need to meet or um, someone else that you need to help or um, some other direction and you end up being the coach to the Olympic team because on that start line happens to be a group of people that you can assist or whatever. I can definitely feel and hear that argument for 90% of the time for me. But what about that if you are really have the ability to be, no, probably, you think you have potentially got the ability to be, say, number one in the world, Olympic champion, world champion, but it's a stretch, like it's a big stretch goal. 
can, do you think that you should pitch your goal that you want to be on the start line of that event or can you pitch your goal six months, one year, four years out from that event mm. saying, I want to win the Olympics? Okay. The answer is um, it's the furthest one. Um, it's the furthest one that suits you. My, my goal when I was eight, eight years old, was to build a healing centre and change the world at eight. Impossible. How can you possibly do that? Why do you have that concept? What, what is it about that eight-year-old? No, it wasn't that I was told it. In fact, the opposite. I wasn't told that I could do any of that. In fact, probably the reverse. But that's the point is, is that that child could sense it. Mm-hmm. And if you can learn to listen to that sense, you will be guided. And yes, you can have a goal of being number one in the world when that feels to be your goal. What I'm getting at is it's not someone else that puts it on you. It's not that, and and you might go, hang on, I I admire Rafael Nadal. I'm going to be the best tennis player because he inspired me. No, no, no. He gave you the concept that you intuitively knew yourself you were capable of doing. And so, yes, when you can achieve, if you have set that sense to be the best, you have a listen to some of the best athletes in the world and you ask them, when did you feel that you could be this? And I'll bet you that a lot of them, it was when they were little. Yeah. You I, look at, at yeah. cricket players, you look at soccer players and, and they go, when they were six years old, they go, oh, I'm going to be on the Australian oh, team. I used to be super superstitious as a kid, you know, I'd, I kind of knew that even I reckon at three or four years old that I wanted to be that good and it kind of for me it happened almost so not easily because a lot of hard work went in but it happened just so fluently till I got to 21 when I did achieve world champion so I kind of hear what you're saying and, and it makes sense so if you have the seed in you that believes that you can be that good it's then okay to set be. your goal there not but only if... that it is it is essential that you do yeah. in exactly the same way that you might go I really want to go to Spain I want to go on the um, Kokoda Trail I want to climb mm. Everest I want to whatever it is that is your goal whatever it is that you have always wanted to do Go and do the things. I want to be a person in space. Whatever it is, Mm. it's about taking that um, uh, concept, listening to yourself, which is what the emotions allow you to do, and they will guide you step by step by step to that end. Because what it's saying is, and it is a probability, not an absolute, it's saying that within you is the sense that you have the capacity to achieve that end. Mm. And so there's, if you're a betting person, which in life is a set of probabilities, you go for it. And you may never achieve it, but that's not the point. The point is every bit of what you have done has driven you to things that you love to do. Mm -hmm. And, yes, some of it's hard, but it's never stuff that you resent when it is you that is driving you. Yeah. I don't resent one bit of anything that's happened in the last 40, 50 years. Not one bit, mm. because every bit of it was stuff that I wanted to to um, move towards. Yeah. 
And I would, I would add for me exactly the same. The good, the bad, the ugly, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change or resent anything that has happened to me in my short life. And I think that's kind of a really lovely point to finish on that what I'm going to take away from today is that um, performance really puts us in a set of, set of steps where emotional intelligence can play a huge role in helping us to achieve and find our best self um, and that in order to take yourself towards mastery, you need to hold on to your... In- you, it is vital to hold on to your integrity but to allow freedom along the Absolutely, side, that flexibility. That, the flexibility. Absolutely. And that... I think that's probably an answer I've been looking for for a while, you know, because if you think of it as a one pillar, not these two concepts, you can feel like you lose your sense of freedom when you put in place a goal. So I'm, I'm really loving that. That's my take-home message for today, and I can't thank you enough for take two. It's an absolute <laughs> pleasure. Thank you.